From Sector 001 in the Alpha Quadrant, this is the Omega Directive, Episode 11, Doug Drexler. Okay, hi, welcome to the Omega Directive. My name is Steve Atwell, and I am still your host. Tonight's guest is an Oscar, Emmy, BAFTA, and Saturn Award-winning visual effects artist, designer, sculptor, illustrator, makeup artist, occasional actor, and lifelong <laughs> Star Trek fan. Oh, my God, who is this guy? <laughs> among, his credits, <laughs> among his credits are the films The Hunger, Starman, FX, Fatal Attraction, Dick Tracy, Three Men, and a Little Lady, Shining Through, Starship Troopers, Star Trek The Motion Picture, The Director's Cut, and, of course, all the Star Trek television series from the 80s, 90s, and oddies. He's also worked as an illustrator and co-author on the Star Trek Encyclopedia, Star Trek Medical Reference Manual, Star Trek Science Logs, and the Deep Space Nine Technical Manual, to name but a few. Not to mention the interactive CD-ROMs of the Star Trek Encyclopedia and Star Trek's Captain Chair. And I've asked him here today to discuss with him, Have Gun, Will Travel. The landmark. Wow! I didn't realize that. that's what we're going to talk about. That's so cool. The landmark television western that helped Gene Roddenberry establish his career as a writer. Okay, we'll talk about Star Trek and other stuff too. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. Doug Drexler. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's going good. It's going good. I trust. I trust the same for everybody. I need to apologize to everyone up front because I've been a little bit sick lately. You might hear it in my voice, and uh, hopefully, I won't cough too much. But it's a pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure to be here. Hey, have good will travel. That's really, I'm so interested in that, and it's such such an important part of Star Trek history that a lot of people don't know about. I mean, I think that Roddenberry wrote like 24 episodes of Have Gun Will Travel. That's where he cut his teeth. That's where he became a writer. Yeah, I was listening to the podcast that Larry Nemechek does, The Trekophiles. And he mentioned that you had an interest in that. And I'm like, well, I've been wanting to do an episode about it for a while. Maybe uh, it would be great to chat with you, an expert, more or less. Well, I don't know if I'm an expert, but uh, it has been. A, what's ironic about it is that um, Have Gun Will Travel had a big effect on me as I was a kid growing up. I had no idea that Gene Roddenberry, I mean, I didn't know who Gene Roddenberry was at the time. And then later on, when I look back, I'm like, holy cow, this guy was instrumental in that show. I, also, what's really interesting about it is that I've read articles where people have said, well, you know, Gene Roddenberry doesn't know what it's like to be in the trenches. He's always been a producer. Uh, and that's so not true. I mean, uh, if you if you look at his history, you'll see the huge number that he was responsible for before Star Trek, and especially Have Gun. Yeah, it's like 20, 25 percent of the scripts of that program. Now, you grew up, as I understand, in Long Island. Yep. And uh, what kind of kid were you like? Uh, were you always a nerd? <laughs> yes. Uh, I was a nerd before there was such a word. There was no word uh, <laughs> like nerd yet. I mean, um, uh, we were at a point in, you know, when you talk about the 60s mm -hmm. and, and the 40s and the 50s, when you talk about science fiction and fandom, I mean, now it's really, you know, mainstream hip science fiction and comics and big epic, you know, like the Marvel movies and stuff like that. But in the 60s, when I was growing up, I was born in 53. 
And Star Trek, well, science fiction in general was was mocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was considered kid stuff. Uh, and you would be, I mean, I would get picked on at school for reading, having science fiction books with me. You know, my first football was a science fiction novel. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you remember what that novel was? Oh, God, my first, no, I don't know what the first one was. But, uh, I mean, uh, when I, by the time I was 11, I think I had read all of the classic stuff, you know, and I was a big Edgar Rice Burroughs fan. I read every John Carter, you know, of Mars. And, and I mean, it. that's what I did. I loved science fiction. Um, I think that today, now that science fiction has become so mainstream, uh, you have a lot of fans who really, I think a lot, a lot of them have never read a science fiction book. They're really action adventure fans. You know, uh, I got my start in reading the books yeah. and every Star Trek fan should stop. If you've never read a science fiction book, you should, you should see where Star Trek comes from. Uh, I think it's really an important thing to do. Yeah. I'm about 50 years old. And I remember back in the mid seventies when I think it was NBC TV did a miniseries based on Bradbury's, um, the Martian Chronicles. Oh yeah. Sure. And my dad then got a copy of the book and was reading it to me, you know, as a bedtime, whatever. So, well, you know, that series, I thought there were some really good moments in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, there were segments in there that dealt with, like, I think Rock Hudson was in it, right? I think. And there were moments between him and Martians uh, that were so kind of moving and felt like the book. Uh, you know, the production design of some of the Martian artifacts. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, great stuff. Yeah, and were you a monster kid as a, when you were little? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I probably had a softer place in my heart for science fiction, but I was a you know a monster kid. I mean, I read uh, you know all of Forey Ackerman's monster magazines, and and he was an. I think the way he wrote influenced the way I, I write. Uh, that mixed up with Stan Lee and all the science fiction writers like Edgar Rice Burroughs. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really how I got my start doing makeup was because monster movies, the makeup was one of the stars in the picture. You know, how do they make someone look like that? I mean, it's so I mean, I I owe that. I mean, I grew up on Universal Monsters, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein. And then (laughs) when they got into like Frankenstein meets (laughs) the Wolfman and Abbott Costello, (laughs) Dracula. I mean, those, I love those. Uh, Universal's only like two miles down the street from me. And I worked there for quite a while on the lot. And just to walk around that lot and say, oh, yeah, that's the stage where they shot Frankenstein with Boris Karloff right next to our office. You know, that's amazing. So what I'm trying to get at, um, did you get into start doing makeup as a kid and um, or the, the visual effects kind of stuff or what? Well, I mean, I always built models and stuff like that, and I ha- and I played with eight millimeter. I had an eight millimeter camera, you know, that I did rudimentary, you know, <laughs> effects for the day, scratching electricity onto every frame if I wanted to have electricity or beams, you know. Uh, but I had never really, I know, I didn't get started doing makeup until much, much, much later. I don't think I ever thought I would be a makeup artist. That kind of came out of the blue for me when I was about. 24 
Mm-hmm. Well, what did you think you would uh, pursue for a career when you were younger? I want to be a comic book artist. There you go. <laughs> of course, everybody wants to work in Hollywood. You know, I mean, that, that, that is the ultimate dream. But you figure, well, I live in New York. This is where all the comic books come from. I can draw. That's where what I thought I wanted to do. I'm glad that didn't happen because, honestly, to make a living as a comic book artist – Unless you have a super popular book or can do like five or six books a month right. or um, you sell your book and it becomes walking dead, making a living like that is really, really difficult. You have to be a Jack Kirby. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've read stories about the early days of the comics and the, you know what they call the golden age of how guys would be under the deadlines. But because everybody lived so close to each other in Manhattan, It'd be like somebody gets an assignment on Thursday for a book that has to be at the press on Monday, and he'd just call up everybody, and they'd all get together at his apartment, and they'd all jam together to put the thing, you know, even to the point of using tracing paper to take pictures straight out of, the, you know, other books and newspaper strips to put it in there. But um, I have friends who are comic book artists and writers, and I know what it's like in the industry, so maybe you kind of did dodge a bullet by... Uh, going through what you did. Look, it's hard to get started in the movie business, but that business seemed to want me more. <laughs> uh, I'm glad I ended up in it. But honestly, I think when I finally reach the point where I retire, uh, that's one of the things that I'm going to do, not to make a living, but to just do it to amuse myself. I mean, one of the things that I love about the pencil is, you know, I really got into digital effects and do artwork in a computer and use 3D programs and stuff like that. But, you know, it's true that anybody can pick up a copy of a program and learn how to use it. Not everybody has an eye, and that's the difference. And something that I see working in the business where you have young people coming up, they've gone to visual effects schools and they've taken courses and they could use the program, but there's, like, no sense of composition or light and dark. And But, uh, so, but the thing about the programs, though, is, like I said, anybody can pick one up and learn how to make a picture. But you know what? Not everybody can pick up a pencil and make a picture, and no one can go out and buy your style of drawing. You can't buy it like a plug-in. So the thing that's so appealing to me is it's so primal. It goes all the way back to cave paintings in France, you know, and and no one can duplicate it. Yeah. It's yeah. you, 100%. So that's really when I get to the point where I'm just doing what I want to do for my own fun. I think that it's going to be uh, doing more drawing. I do. I want to do a graphic novel. Hmm. Uh, you know. I tend to think of the the comic book as the poor man's movies, because um, all well, you need I mean, is a pencil look, and imagination. Yes, and but what was really fascinating about it that in the '60s, the only place you could see epic big stuff like that was in comic books. You couldn't see it in the movies. That's what was so attractive about it. You couldn't go to the movies and see the kind of stuff that Lee and Kirby were pulling off with those two-page spreads and stuff like that. Uh, you know, movies couldn't do it. The technology wasn't there yet. Technology finally caught up with Marvel Comics, and now we've got these epic – and fortunately, I think that you know Marvel is in really good hands uh, as far as the movies go, where DC is kind of – they can't – you know, they can't seem to find themselves the – the, overarching control or quality control at Marvel is much greater 
than at Warner where they do DC, where they tend to go from one director to the next and let that director do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. You can't do that with the Marvel stuff. And that's part of the reason why Mar the Marvel stuff is so intricate and hangs together so well. It isn't jarring. Every time you go see B Batman, it's a whole different aesthetic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so how did you get into doing movies and working on uh, stuff professionally? Well, um, it's funny. I, uh, I mean, you know, back then, uh, you couldn't just go on a computer and type in Dick Smith, makeup artist, and find out all about him and where he lives and how to send him a message and stuff like that. You couldn't go into the computer and type in life casting on YouTube and get 200 videos on how to do a life cast. You really had to be a go-getter at the time when I was starting to get into the business. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but, <laughs> but I had to, I collected magazines and books and stuff for years. Anything that had scraps of knowledge and how to do a life cast or whatever, I put that right in a file. Mm. And uh, I was working at an architectural supply in Manhattan and um, they had a Halloween party one year. I, I think I was 24 around there anyway. Uh, they were having a Halloween party. And I remembered I had an article on um, how to do prosthetic foam latex appliances. Uh, and, and it was how to do a Planet of the Apes makeup, which a lot of guys of my generation, that's what got them started. You know, they probably their first makeup was a Planet of the Apes makeup. So I got invited to this party. I knew I had this great article. I pulled the article out. And luckily, living in New York, I was in Brooklyn at the time. Uh, almost everything that you needed to do that was available in New York. There were, you know, uh, makeup companies that sold uh, plaster and I think uh, was it Paramount Theatrical Supply. Yeah, <laughs> they were in Manhattan at the time. I could go there and get foam latex and stuff like that. I decided I was going to do I was going to do a makeup. I'd never done it before, and um, I I got into it and it was like I was possessed. I mean, it was so amazing. Uh, just knowing how to make molds feels like superpower. You can make copies of things. Wow, that's amazing. And then when I did the makeup and I, and I put the makeup on the gal uh, who was Zira, it was one of the most earth-shaking experiences ever. I, I, it was like I had made this life form. And even the person who was wearing it was affected by having that new face. I mean, I saw a side to this person's personality come out that they were never like that without the makeup on, you know, and, I, and actually I witnessed that a lot, uh, you know, putting makeups on actors, they become somebody else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But so how did you get professionally started? I'm getting to that. Okay. So I was invited to this party. Mm -hmm. I did this makeup. Mm -hmm. It blew my mind. I started reading every book I could find. And I found out that the guy I admired the most was a guy named Dick Smith. Mm -hmm. And Dick Smith had done, you know, uh, movies like Little Big Man, The Exorcist, Amadeus. I mean, it, when it came to doing subtle character makeup, he was the man. And there was a book called Richard Corson's Theater Makeup Book, which is still a classic. And in it, there's a whole big section on Dick Smith of him actually doing makeups and, and, and sculptures and things like that. And I used to take that book and put it on a projector and project it wall size. <laughs> we didn't have scanners yet, so that's how you had to do it to try to read the labels on the jars and the bottles on the shelves. And one day I was chatting with a friend of mine who was a, uh, he did interviews for film magazines. And he said, you know, uh, I got Dick Smith's uh, telephone number. I'm going to give it to you. You should call him. And 
I was like so excited. I found out that he lived just north of New York City in Larchmont, like 15 miles north of New York City. He was in my neighborhood. But the whole idea of calling him, this guy I was idolizing like a god, was terrifying. It, it, it took me, I think it took me two weeks to build up the nerve <laughs> to call him. And, and when I got him on the phone, this guy kept me on the phone. He kept me on the phone for a couple of hours, just giving me information, giving me addresses, where to get stuff like that, you know, for makeup. And that was the beginning of my friendship with Dick Smith. And um, I started, of course, we didn't have email. I would I would mail him pictures of stuff I was doing. And about three months later, it's funny, I was mixing. It was in the morning and I was still going crazy making molds. I was mixing a bucket of plaster on the floor. And the phone rings, and it was Dick Smith. And he says, I'm starting a movie. It's called The Hunger with David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve, and there's all this makeup. And are you available to come and assist? Can you imagine that? <laughs> I That was a moment. And the funny thing is that that bucket of plaster I was mixing, uh-huh. at that very moment, during the phone conversation, solidified. And I always felt like that, like that was a moment where my life kind of solidified, too. So I still have that piece of plaster. I have it in a cabinet next to the Academy Award. And I wrote every makeup job I got on that thing. And so I went to work with Dick Smith. And that was the beginning of, you know, my career in makeup. Um, and that was like an amazing job to start out on, because if you if you know the hunger, there were like four or five stages of old age makeup for David Bowie, where he ages in the doctor's office while he's waiting. Which is, uh, there were mummy suits. We, we, we did like four or five mummy suits that actors wore. We had to do full body cast of them and make uh, full. It, it was a real, you know, in those days, <laughs> people worked out of their garages and and you did it by hand. I mean, it sounds weird now. Um, technology has changed so much. I mean, you don't even do big things like that anymore as makeup. You do it digitally, you know, uh, but. There were there were like four or five uh, mummy suits. We had crumbling mummies. There were what we call changeo heads, lots of foam latex. And I, I was on that job for like six months. And uh, it was just like, you know, my college of prosthetic knowledge. Yeah, there you go. You got your foot in the door. Yeah, now I can't get it out. <laughs> well, according to my research, at some point you decided uh, you'd rather switch over to doing Graphic illustrations. What can you, well, uh, what? Well, what I really wanted to do was, um, first of all, I was in makeup for like 13, 14 years. Yeah. And right after Dick Tracy, I'm a big Star Trek geek, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, from September 1966. And that's uh, the idea that they were doing Star Trek again with Gene Roddenberry. That was, was mind-blowing. And it was all waiting for me because I made friends with Bob Justman over telephone and uh, writing letters. And um, when Dick Tracy brought us out to California and we were finished up, Next Generation was just about to start its third season. And I literally went over and I begged Mike Westmore to let me come <laughs> and do makeup on Star Trek with him. And uh, and he let me. And so I was uh, on the show doing makeup for like three seasons. And I had the best time. And I mean, I lived on, on Next Generation. I lived on the Enterprise, you know. I even got to put on a uniform and be in scenes. <laughs> but uh, the thing is this. I don't know how anyone can be a makeup artist for 40, 45 years. 
I don't really can, cannot see how you could be any one thing for an entire 40, 45 years like Dick Smith was. And most of my friends who whatever they do, that's what they do their entire life. I ch I've changed my career like three or four times in my career. I think I'm in the business for about three, seven years now. And so I was doing makeup on Star Trek and looking at those beautiful sets and the amazing detail that went into everything, the backlit graphics and stuff like that. And um, I made friends with the people in the art department. I just gravitated towards the art department. I wanted to be in the art department no matter what it was. It wasn't particularly graphics or I'm drawing. I love to draw and design, you know. But the thing was that Mike Okuda, who was the scenic art supervisor and did all the graphic design on the show, we hit it off and we're still like the best of friends. And uh, so as soon as he had an opening, I slid sideways, which you could do if you're, if you're on a show like that where everyone knows each other. You could slide sideways into a different department. And I slid sideways into the art department. I was working with Mike for like seven years on uh, Deep Space Nine. Which led to me sliding over to, you know, I was I was a graphic designer. I did design other stuff, too. That was the other beauty of the department. So being in the art department before there was CGI, if visual effects needed, like a model of a Klingon space station, we would make one out of junk. And we could do it in like a day or so. And so it was because of that that I got to know the visual effects guys who I hit it off with. And I eventually, I went from... Um, doing graphics to sliding sideways again to being an illustrator on Enterprise and then sliding sideways again to get into visual effects where actually I, I guess for the last like 15 years or so I've been I've been in the visual effects game. Right. But I, I just can't see being one thing. How does anybody in this business? There's so many interesting things going on. Really? You don't want to try that out? You know, that's. <laughs> yeah. It's been my um, experience that as a creative person, you're creative in many, many different endeavors, and you really don't want to just um, nail yourself down to one. So I know what you're talking about. Most people do, though. But and, and the other thing is that when you're in something for so long, people expect you to know everything. And I demand the right to be stupid. <laughs> I like to be able to say, I don't really know the answer to that. What? When you find out, why don't you let me know? <laughs> but uh, at a certain point, if you're Dick Smith, people expect you to know everything. And it was kind of fun to start over, you know? It, it's a challenge, and it's kind of exciting, and it's scary. Mm -hmm. You think it, You think I just went to the art department and knew everything was going to work out great? No. I mean, was I throwing away my makeup career to go to the art department and fail? Could It could have been, you know. So part of the thrill is throwing those dice. Right. So with Star Trek, um, of course, you were a kid when it originally premiered, the original. Because on so many of the podcasts that are out there, they say, well, what was your first portal into Star Trek? And, of course, it was the original series. It was it, was it the, the one that started it all. And as I understand it, your fandom was so great that in the 70s, you actually opened your own Star Trek store. Yeah, uh, it was the Federation Trading Post, uh, and it was a Star Trek store. I mean, it was it was it was on a piece of prime real estate. I don't know how we even did it. Fifty third and third, mm. and uh, it was just Star Trek. And at a time where, you know, Star Trek was a failed television show. Uh, I guess the store opened in seventy six, seventy six, and. 
it was a crazy idea. And the, actually, the other merchants in the neighborhood were laughing at us because we weren't doing too good. Um, and so we saved up all our pennies. And um, at midnight on, I don't know if it was WPIX or WOR, or, you know, a, one of the syndicated channels, they were showing the outer limits every night. And we could afford to have like a 30-second slide with a voiceover and an address. And we did it. And the next morning, there was a line around the block. <laughs> and it stayed that way. Uh, one thing I should mention, though, is that I, I was at the very first Star Trek con. Um, was it 71 or 72? Uh, at the Statler Hilton, I guess it was, across from Penn Station. It was the first convention ever. There had never been one. And they only expected a couple of hundred people or like a couple of thousand showed up. And it was a phenomenon. I think that was the first time people were starting to realize that there was this groundswell building that really happened during uh, syndication. I mean, one of the things about syndication is, you know, when the original Star Trek was on for at least the last season, it was buried on Friday night at 10 o'clock at a time when people didn't have recorders. Mm hmm. You know, yeah. uh, although if you read Mark Cushman's books on the series, you'll see that the ratings were a lot better than NBC led on to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I understand it, Gene was difficult. His relationship with NBC was kind of they would be at odds quite a bit. And um, uh, I think that they got tired of him. Uh, it was it was easier for for them not to renew the show. I think that that had a lot to do with it. I think that he gave them. Not that they're angels, but I think that he gave them a lot of grief towards the end. And I know for a fact that Gene was involved with the Save Star Trek uh, uh, campaign that happened during the second season uh, with B. Joe Trimble and John Trimble. And I'm sure the network knew it. I mean, there were picketers outside of NBC and Burbank. I remember uh, during the showing of um, Assignment Earth, a second season episode, that there was an on-air announcement over the credits saying... Star Trek fans, Star Trek will be returning for a third year. I mean, that was on, they never did that before, but they were getting so many letters and they, they were getting tired of save Star Trek bumper stickers being stuck on their front door and <laughs> oh. you know, mobs of people outside. So they kept it for another year. So ladies yeah. and gentlemen, that's the way to uh, get things going in uh, for television and for politics. If you have a problem with your politicians, sorry, that's not this podcast. <laughs> 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 but I'm right with you, though. I happen to, you know, people have to organize. Uh, Star Trek, you know, it's a weirder time for fandom because uh, I think that in those days you had, I don't, and I don't mean to insult anybody, I'm not insulting anybody, but it, it was a more literate fan base. I think that what they finally managed to do is capture the mass market uh, with Star Trek. And so now we have a big, vast, wide group of fans where there are factions that are broken off into little tribes. And they, a lot of them are goddamn mean as hell on the Internet. I can't believe some of the stuff that people will say. Right. You know? And that's true of the Internet in general, whether it be Star Trek fandom or politics. And people get their knives out. And that is just so counterproductive. And it's no way to get anything done and never gets anything done. Right. I'm going to do a podcast soon about bullying and in fandom as uh, all the way around, but uh, that's not today. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, I would take a break for a word from our sponsors. Unfortunately, I don't currently have sponsors. I'm looking for sponsors. 
Having a sponsor would mean I'd be able to upgrade recording equipment as well as pay for travel expenses to get to more conventions so I can meet more people and get hopefully get more guests on. But in lieu of an actual sponsor, I'm just going to play commercial advert from the past, something that has a Star Trek um, relationship. Okay. Star Trek, the game. A game so challenging, you need this combat control panel to play it. Launch photons, fire your phasers, engage warp speed, blast Klingons and alien saucers on your way to the ultimate enemy, Nomad. Is it the most challenging game in the galaxy? It's inhuman. Star Trek from Sega. Okay, coming back, ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is Mr. Doug Drexler, and I do want to chat a bit about Have Gun, Will Travel, the landmark western that got Gene Roddenberry started. Now, did you did you watch the original uh, when it premiered, or did you? Yes, I did. I really did. It's hard to believe. Um, I have a picture of myself. It's a first grade class picture, and I've got a Have Gun, Will Travel bolo tie with a little chess piece mm-hmm. on the on the thing and there it was right in the very beginning and I, you know i just remember that there were tons and tons of westerns it was all westerns and, and cop shows yeah at the time uh but there was something different about paladin he almost was a superhero you know? yeah um he was if you look at it kirk spock and mccoy are paladin split three ways he basically Roddenberry basically took Paladin, split him in three ways, and then was able to have all the different sides of the personality talk to each other. So it's kind of brilliant, really. For those that don't know, in the early in the mid well the early 1950s, CBS Radio started a series called Gunsmoke, which was supposed to be the first adult themed western, and it was so popular they turned it into a television series. And after running for a couple of seasons, they decided to pair it up with another mature uh, western and what we got was have gun will travel it ran for six seasons and and had, don't forget that they didn't have a 26 episode season i think it was more like 40 episodes imagine that having to write 40 literate good scripts a season wow right you know have gun will travel um led into the man from uncle mm-hmm. was it norman i got the name here Hang on. Here we go. See my uncle ID card? Mm. <laughs> yes. That's Norman Felton. He was one of the producers of The Man from Uncle. He was on Have Gun Will Travel. Uh, and Roddenberry watched The Man from Uncle very closely. Uh, and you could see its influences on Star Trek. On Uncle, there was a gun that came apart. It was called the Uncle Carbine, Uncle Special. And it became a hit on its own. The studio would get letters addressed to the gun. <laughs> Uh, and as a kid, I always wanted one of those really bad. I actually have a really good one now. It's just a work of uh, television production design art. Uh, Gene saw that, and that is why the phaser comes apart. That's why there's three pieces to it, because he saw how fascinating that was. And the designer, the guy who designed the the laser rifle from Where No Man Has Gone Before was the guy who designed the Uncle Carbine. Uh, so there's that connection that runs well, and if you look at Man from Uncle, you'll see very much that Napoleon Solo is kind of the Captain Kirk and that his partner is kind of an alien. He's a Russian spy. And in the, in the 1960s, the idea of there being a Russian, I mean, that was even wilder. You know, I mean, look, Gene did it in the second season. 
he brought on Chekhov, but really it was something that the man from Uncle had done several years earlier. Uh, among the uh, writers of Have Gun, Will Travel, of course, Gene Roddenberry wrote 24. Other major um, contributors were Bruce Geller, Harry Julian Fink, Don Brinkley, Irving Wallace, and uh, the list goes on and on. And the thing about the show that struck me, I mean, talking about the 1950s, we have episodes about uh, tolerance and uh, acceptance and anti-racism and not just, um, I mean, for the most part back then, the issue of African-American civil rights was never, was rarely addressed head on. Yet, but they went ahead and had Native American stories to to stand in for, to be metaphor. On Paladin, we had stories about Native Americans, about Mexicans, about Chinese, Chinese Jews, Mexicans. Uh, immigrants from all over and African Americans, and uh, Paladin in early episodes is shown supporting uh, logic and reason, critical thinking, science, and uh, anti-superstition, and not just in the Roddenberry episodes, as well as compassion and nobility, regardless of a person's uh, social standing. So yeah, this is really where Star Trek. Uh, roots, well, one of the places where Star Trek roots began. Have Gun Will Travel was created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe. Sam Rolfe, for those that don't know, went on to write episodes for Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. And it's the kind of program that we could use again today, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was an amazing show. Um, really remarkable. It was, it was unlike any of the other Westerns. Uh, and Richard Boone was quite an interesting character. Did you ever see, um, oh, heck, what was that Western with a um, movie with Paul Newman? Oh, uh, um, Ombre? Yes, yes, Ombre. Oh, my God, Richard Boone is one scary dude in there. Of course, he's a pretty scary dude as Palin. You don't want to be on the wrong side with him around. Right. <laughs> um, Ombre uh, has come up on the program before. Because actress Barbara Rush was in it, and she's the mother. Well, she was married to Jeffrey Hunter, and is the mother of Chris Hunter, who has been a, a guest on this program. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So. Anyway, uh, have gun with travel. You got the chance, Doug, to uh, play uh, <laughs> Paladin in an episode of was it uh, Star Trek Continues? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. I've got the whole outfit, I mean, from head to toe. Of course you do. <laughs> that was fun, though. That was fun. I think that Vic did that to just lure me into the show, you know, because he wanted me to do visual effects, which I did for, I think, four episodes. Uh-huh. And didn't you also play Dr. McCoy? No, that was, was that Larry Nevichek? That was Larry. Yeah, yeah. But is that the only acting you've done? What else have you appeared in? Well, I mean, probably that was the only one you could really call acting, where I had lines and stuff. But I've been on, I was, I've been on episodes of Next Generation as crew person, mm. <laughs> on Enterprise, on Battlestar Galactica. But you know, as far as acting with quotation marks around it, probably Star Trek Continues the only time I've ever done anything like that. Not really an actor. Right. So, uh, what are you working on these days? Are you still doing, uh, where are you at, professionally? Well, 
right now I'm working on the I'm working on a book cover for one of the Star Trek books uh, for Pocket, and I'm working on the next issue of the Ships of the Line calendar uh, for the next year. Um, I had after Star Trek, I you know I I went to Battlestar Galactica for a bunch of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we did Caprica, mm-hmm. uh, then Defiance, and then uh, I worked on a show called Beyond, which w- finished up in uh, in this January, and uh, that's what I'm doing. You know, there may be another series coming up soon. I hope. I have my fingers crossed. Okay, I'm running low on questions because um, but I think it's. Am I, I'm boring you. <laughs> goodness no, goodness no, goodness no. Um, it's not that at all. I'm kidding. But I, I know you have something to do. You need to be done. And even though it's only been 40 minutes, I'm going to go ahead and start winding things down, okay. if I may. Yep. Which leads us to Stevie's Tough But Not Too Tough Trivia Challenge. Trivia? The special Doug Drexler edition. I'm going to ask questions. I refuse to do trivia. I'm going to ask questions about the movies you've worked on and the connections between them and Star Trek with the cast and background stuff. So you okay. should have no problem. Question right. one, you worked on The Hunger. As you mentioned, yep. David Bowie was a star. His wife, uh, Iman, appeared in which Star Trek motion picture? <laughs> Star Trek V, uh, six. That's correct. I almost said <laughs> One of my favorite, it's not one of my favorite Star Treks, but there is a great moment where uh, uh, Iman and Kirk end up like kind of in bed together, mm-hmm. and McCoy's in the bunk up overhead. Mm-hmm. And after she leaves, McCoy leans over the guy side and says, "What is it with you?" <laughs> that was awesome. It's a classic. It's absolutely classic. And then when she turns into an al- duplicate Kirk, and they make and and he says, "I can't believe I kissed you. This must have been your lifelong dream." I know. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, if I can, question two. You worked on the Cotton Club. Which cast member of the Cotton Club had a recurring role in Star Trek Enterprise third season as a Zindi primate counselor? I don't know. That was Tucker Smallwood. Who was he in the Cotton Club? I don't know. Where's Wikipedia on this thing? Yeah, <laughs> I turned it back on you. <laughs> yeah, gee, I don't know. They were covered with makeup. <laughs> right, right. I'll say question three. Brian Dennehy co-starred in the film FX. His daughter, Elizabeth, guest starred as Commander Shelby in which landmark Next Generation two-part episode? Oh, God, that was amazing. That was uh, Best of Both Worlds. Yeah. Which was, that that was a moment where the ship, the show seemed to solidify. Oh, yeah. You know, it really took off at that point. Absolutely the high point. And, you know, I was there uh, on set for both those episodes. Uh, that was really, really fun. I, you know, I remember we were shooting part two, and uh, on the sound cart, they had a little TV. They were airing part one. And at the very end where, you know, I think Riker says something like, prepare to fire, and then he says, fire! And I look, and Jonathan Frakes is standing there. I look up at him, and he goes, Riker, the man, the money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I remember that uh, episode so well. I remember I was in college at the time it aired, and all my friends, everybody was talking the whole summer. What happened? What's going to happen next? What's going on? How do they resolve it? It's great. Absolutely. It's the best Star Trek ever. Yeah. 
Question four. There's only five questions. Question four. Which Deep Space Nine regular cast member appeared in Dick Tracy as a cop? Oh! <laughs> Miles O'Brien. Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He comes running up in one shot, I think. Cole Meany. Yeah. Cole yeah. Meany. A nice guy. Nice guy. At, at question five, for all the marbles, double or nothing, three men, you worked on Three Men and a Little Lady. That was yeah. the sequel to the hit 1987 film Three Men and a Baby. Which DOS yeah. regular cast member directed Three Men and a Baby? Well, Leonard Nimoy. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a genius. You are. You are. Dang, I didn't really get to stump you on any except maybe the Cotton Club. He got me on that one. I didn't even know who that guy was. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, gee, I remember Paul Servino yeah. uh, was guest cast as Worf's brother. Mm -hmm. And he came up to the art department, you know, when he heard I was up there. Uh, I, You know, um, and uh, what's his name? Um, um, he was uh, in the first season episode, uh, played Sam Catchum in uh, Dick Tracy. Uh, played a federal. Uh, I, I forget his name. I don't remember. And I forget. Oh, yeah. It was it was a, a really good time for Los Angeles as a movie making center. Um, I mean, now it's there's stuff being made, but it's compared to then it's like a ghost town uh, because you know things have thanks to local government and stuff they forced the film business out. Um, it made it too expensive. So they're in Vancouver, Toronto, um, uh, Georgia, uh, North Carolina, Louisiana, almost everywhere but here. Kind of a shame. And, and we have lots of earthquakes. <laughs> yeah. Let me do this real quick. Seymour Cassell That's it. was the actor. What a character. And he appeared in Star Trek. Oh, he appeared in Next Generation episode... The Child, the episode, the second uh, season, season premiere episode. Okay. He was a character. Well, do you have anything else that you feel uh, is pertinent to chat about at the moment or feel like uh, unwinding on? I can talk for days. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Do you have anything else you want to ask me? Not at the moment. Um, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Hopefully okay. it wasn't too painful. Not at all. All right. I think I like better than talking about this stuff. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, again, I need to say thanks. Thanks to my guest, uh, Doug Drexler, for yes. agreeing to do this. Absolutely. And uh, I need to give thanks again to Adam Mullen, who composed the theme song for the program. Adam co-hosts his own Star Trek podcast about Star Trek fan films and other productions with Bill Allen on the uh, Trek Sphere Network called the Final Frontier and to, uh, thanks also go to Adam for helping me figure out how to do a podcast I mean, this is the Alpha Quadrant the Alpha Quadrant is on uh, iTunes and it's on Facebook I'm available on Twitter as at atwellsteve underscore Steve Doug uh, has, you have your how can plug website Facebook Twitter anything yeah, I mean I'm on Facebook Nothing. Uh, I got nothing to plug. Okay. Thanks again. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to say that's a wrap. Good night. <laughs> Thank Bye, you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Ah, goodness. <laughs>